you know, Daniel uh, was not uh, a, um, you know, an 80-year-old rabbi from Eastern Europe uh, who lived in the 1800s, if you know what I'm trying to say. Uh, Daniel was not an old sage. Now, eventually he became that, I trust, but when we uh, open up the book of Daniel and we look at this man, he's a young man. He's a young man who's just starting out. And uh, we learn uh, some really important things about him. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Daniel. We uh, began last week by way of introduction. <clears throat> and boy, you know, this week I was even reading more uh, material, I'll just say, about Daniel. And uh, you'll, uh, you'll be hearing one of these years, if not hopefully nearer than future, maybe Daniel on Monday nights. Uh, we'll see. But boy, there's a lot uh, to talk about when it comes to uh, 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 Daniel. Much more, frankly, uh, than, um, than, meets, than meets the eye. All right. So we talked uh, last week. Uh, about the what led up to this period of time. We talked about the fact that Daniel uh, uh, takes place in the uh, uh, 500s, the 6th century, in the 500s. Uh, and uh, you know that uh, almost all the prophets are before this, right? Like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, and Joel, and, you know, Habakkuk, all of them uh, are before this time, because this is the time of the beginning of the Babylonian captivity, right? So for those that may not be aware, uh, when you read those prophets, they're all warning the people before the captivity that repent, 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 so that the end doesn't come, so that you don't have to leave the land. Sadly, the people did not heed the warnings and went into captivity. Now, about a hundred and, uh, oh, I don't know, a hundred and some odd years, approximately, I'll just say about 120 years, maybe. Yeah. Uh, before this, the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, they went, uh, they were scattered. Uh, they went into captivity. Then, uh, in the beginning, really, in about the year 605 was really the beginning of the end. That's when Nebuchadnezzar uh, won the battle at Carchemish. We read that, you know, in history. And this is when he had began his uh, control of this whole section of the world, of the, what we call today the Middle East, right? <clears throat> and so one of the first things that he did is uh, they were puppet leaders uh, in uh, Jerusalem. But the uh, Babylonians were a little different than the Assyrians. Okay? The Assyrians, when they uh, 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 captured the northern kingdom of Israel, the way they operated is they displaced the population, but they scattered them in many different places so that they would not uh, have a critical mass and left uh, just the poor and indigent and useless, in their eyes anyway, the useless people uh, 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 to reside there. When the Babylonians overtook Jerusalem and its environs, they had a different 
uh, a plan. They basically took the majority of the population and brought them to Babylon. Uh, and for about a thousand years, the, uh, the, Jewish commun- the Jewish world had a center in Babylon for about a thousand years. From appro- these are big approximates. From approximately 500 BCE to 500 uh, CE, or 500 years AD, as we like to say, uh, for that in that period of time, Babylon. That's why you have a Babylonian Talmud. That's why the Jewish centers of learning were uh, all along the Euphrates River, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So. <clears throat> The, uh, the way that uh, they operated, though, is that they uh, took, evidently, as we read in this text, we learn some things, that Nebuchadnezzar took the best and the brightest right away, took the best and the brightest to Babylon so that they could be indoctrinated into the ways of the Chaldeans, into the ways of the Babylons, and not be then in fetters and chains, but be used uh, by uh, the uh, Babylonians to serve, to serve the king. And so we come here now to verse, uh, to verse 3. In verses 1 and 2, we saw here uh, how uh, uh, God gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And we see here uh, how uh, the vessels from the temple were taken to Babylon, and this serves by way of introduction so that when we come to chapter 5, we're going to know what those vessels are about because they're going to come into play later on in the book. And we said last time, and this is going to replay again, this is going to be a recurring uh, uh, tape, or not, uh, a recurring uh, 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 way of remembering, whatever they mean. I know tape is like another generation. Okay, uh, recurring uh, thing in, uh, in our replay in our minds that God is orchestrating everything, even though from the point of view of this world, God is the loser. God is weak. Where is God? Where is God? God is weak. How come the world is the way it is? That very well could have been what the, uh, the, uh, the, the people who were exiled could have said. After all, uh, we're losing the temple, we're losing our land. The prophets were all wrong, it, you know, even though they were really right, right? Uh, uh, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you know that one of the great um, beliefs that Jeremiah had a fight against, and you read, read it in the seventh chapter very clearly in Jeremiah, is the belief that, hey, we're the chosen people. We have the temple. This cannot happen to us, God. He might do stuff to us, but we can't lose the temple. We can't lose the land because we belong to him. This was a belief that Jeremiah had to fight against, that no, it is indeed possible. Even though he will never leave us nor forsake us, the unthinkable is possible when we do not repent and do not walk with God. Let us not be lulled into like some sleepwalk, uh, uh, a belief that it doesn't really matter. And so it mattered. And here, look at this catastrophe. The temple is taken and the holy holy vessels are taken from God's house, the house of Israel, right? And remember what we said last week in Hebrew, and we're going to see this in a few minutes. There's all kinds of interesting little things 
uh, in the text uh, where it's almost like um, there's a message inside the message. So first we said last week that in verse 2 when it says, um, uh, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. It says, the house of the God, Ha Elohim. It doesn't have to say that. It doesn't have to say that. Beit Elohim would be fine, house of God. But Beit Ha Elohim, as compared to the rest of the verse, when it says, and he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, not the God, his God. There's the God, the one and only God, and then there's Nebuchadnezzar's God. See? So even though uh, on the surface it looks like all is lost, even in the text, the text is telling us that, no, 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 no. There is the one and only Hashem. There is the one and only God of Israel. And even though it may look like Nebuchadnezzar is winning, his God is not a God. There is only one Ha, Elohim, okay? And then the word Shinar, the land of Shinar, is used. It's fascinating. It doesn't say Babylon. It doesn't say uh, uh, Chaldea, okay? Or the land of the Chaldeans. It says Shinar. It says Shinar to alert us that this is a land of, uh, you know, of idolatry. This is a land of idolatry, but there is Ha, Elohim, but where they're going is the land of idolatry. Not just another country, and it's not another god, another real god. As we read in the Brit Hadashah, there is no other god, right? Uh, and so we see uh, that God is orchestrating uh, these, uh, these events. Now, now in verse 3, we begin now to see uh, a little bit of what's taking place and what the strategy is of Nebuchadnezzar and how this really plays into uh, God's strategy, okay? Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family uh, and of the nobles. Okay, now this is also interesting. Uh, For us today, uh, let me just mention this. He uses the word sons of Israel. You know, you only read the word Israel, I think, two times in the book of Daniel. The other time is in the, begin- in the first part of the ninth chapter of Daniel's great prayer of confession. Okay? And here. I would suggest that this sons of Israel is in relationship to the land of Shinar. That they're going to the land of Shinar, the land of idolatry. But the people who are coming are not just refugees. Uh, They're not just the displaced people. But these are sons of the covenant, sons of Israel. And so we're reminded right at the beginning uh, of who these people are, sons of Israel. Sons of Israel. This is the term that's used going all the way back uh, to the 12 tribes, the sons of Israel. Okay, doesn't say Judeans, uh, uh, sons of Israel. Now, there's something else that's really important about this, especially for those folks who like to think of themselves uh, as uh, Israelites 
because they uh, believe uh, that Yeshua is the Messiah, and therefore they must be from the lost ten tribes, okay? Which is uh, totally uh, in the figment of someone's imagination, okay? Notice they're called sons of Israel, but where do they come from? Where do they come from? Clearly, they're coming from Judea. They're coming from Judea, but they're called sons of Israel. Israel. Very important to understand that Israel is used uh, in some places, you see it in Ezekiel especially, interchangeably with uh, 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 Judah. Israel is like, a, it's like, uh, you know, it, it's a subset and it's also the set, right? So you have Israel and then you have Israel and Judah, right? So depending on the context, uh, we're either speaking about people in the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, or the people, the Jewish people, as, as we're known, okay? And so, sons of Israel, Jewish people, all right? Including some of the royal family, all right? Uh, seeds of royalty, very, very, uh, uh, or seed of the king uh, is actually, I, I think, um, literally uh, uh, what that is. I purposely uh, opened up a Hebrew text because of, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's what it is. Umizera uh, hamlucha, right? Seeds of the king or seeds of, uh, uh, of the kingdom. Uh, fascinating, right? Uh, so that means, wow, seeds of the king. Well, from the tribe of Judah, right? Uh, and then uh, we have a, um, uh, a Persian loan word, that's the word nobles, okay? Uh, and so it's very interesting. If you go to the very end of the chapter, the very end of chapter 1, the very, very end of chapter 1, see where it says, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So chapter 1 is like from the beginning to the end. You know, Daniel being brought in and, and all the way to the end of the Babylonian captivity. So it's like an introductory chapter, right? So Cyrus, of course, king of Persia. So it should not surprise us uh, that there should be some uh, Persian words here. And so that's what you have here. So these were no slouches, right? Uh, in terms of their position. So that's what this verse is telling. In terms of their position. They didn't come from like uh, Issachar, you know, uh, Zebulon or the tribe of Dan or just, you know, whoever. No, these were people uh, in line either to become king or to serve the king. But there's more. There's more about them. Youths, 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 not old men. Okay, very important. Youths. And so... Uh, you know, uh, they were uh, uh, what we would call today probably like a teenagers, young teenagers, to use a, a common a terminology, right? Uh, so isn't it interesting that the king of Babylon uh, realized, I don't want the people who are already in power and already, uh, you know, established, I want young, pliable people with a great potential and great future. And these are the people that I'm going to train. So the, a question for us is, why do we let the world take our pliable youths and train them 
when we ourselves say, well, you know, maybe if you're interested, you know, uh, here's some alternatives uh, to serve in the spiritual capacity. Why don't we be really proactive and mold our young people and say, look at these opportunities that you have. Why don't we take uh, our young people and give them a vision for life, not just like, you know, feeding them till they can grow up and do whatever they want, but let's guide them in a particular way. Just like, you know, in schools, you have counselors that give kids counsel about career choices and all kinds of opportunities. Why don't we do that with our young people? And of, of course, that is what we need uh, uh, to, be, to be doing and giving our young people opportunities to serve. You know, here at Beth Messiah, we have become, uh, we have uh, in, in initiated uh, a teen internship uh, program where if someone is um, uh, uh, desirable, qualified, so on and so forth, who is like a senior in high school or early college, uh, we give uh, periodically an opportunity uh, to serve in varieties of capacity, teaching Hebrew school and things of that nature. Why? Because we want our kids to understand. That's why we have a, such a robust youth program. And that's why we have a youth service where we even let our younger kids you know, participate in ways. So that there's a sense that they're part of the future and not just biding their time till they get out, uh, you know, uh, as if, uh, you know, being here is just simply, uh, I'm just, you know, waiting so then I can escape, right? We need to be proactive. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar certainly understood this. Youths in whom was no defect. <laughs> now that's good. No defect who were good looking, okay? No defect basically could mean a, a moral or physical defect, okay? And then it says, who were good looking. So you could say that these were people who, who seemed to be really sharp, <laughs> okay? Really sharp young people that uh, have leadership written all over them, okay? Uh, showing intelligence uh, in every branch of wisdom, okay? Literally, they know knowledge, intelligence and every, <laughs> they know knowledge is, uh, is uh, what that says, showing intelligence is what they, uh, and then in every, you know, in, in wisdom, and then endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. They were able to uh, understand, understand thoughts, to know knowledge. Uh, now, there's another word here, actually. Uh, when it actually, when it says here, uh, showing intelligence in every brand of wisdom, okay, endowed with understanding. Uh, endowed with understanding is knowing knowledge, literally, okay? But intelligence is an interesting word. And if you know uh, uh, Hebrew, uh, here's a word that, even if you don't know Hebrew, but if you kind of know your way around the Jewish world, seichel. You ever hear that word, seichel? That's what this word is. Uh, the word for intelligence, sachal. That's what it is. Now, we would translate that today, common sense. 
We would translate it today, common sense. So in other words, intelligence and wisdom. What do we often say as a sort of a catch phrase for a definition of wisdom? We might say applied knowledge, applied knowledge, right? Uh, And so these were young people who were not only book smart, which they were and had the potential for, but they were understanding, they had common sense. They could read into a situation and understand it. It's the kind of people that they were, okay? Uh, And who had the ability, see, uh, for serving in the king's court. So, of course, they had ability for serving in the king's court with those kinds of credentials, all right? And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So they needed to understand reading. They needed to understand the script and the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. This is what Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to do. He wanted to indeed indoctrinate them. Okay, this was the plan. All right. All right. Now, again, boy, we have some awfully bright young people full of potential that can be described in this way, right? Uh, and so, first of all, let's, let's just remember that uh, and let's uh, be proactive in uh, helping them to know the Word, to help them to know the Scriptures, to help them to uh, understand how to be a Messiah follower and how to live in this world in such a way to give glory to God. So, Then it says, and the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from wine, which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter into the king's service. So they were going to go to school for three years. They were going to learn all of this, and they were going to eat at the king's table. Okay? All right. So this was the plan for many young people. But our story focuses on four of them. For it says, among them, from among them. So it wasn't just out of all of the people, there were these four guys. No, there were lots of them. But our story is about, from now from among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay? These four youths. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. And to Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So these names, they're Hebrew names, all refer in one way, shape, or form to uh, a statement about God. Daniel, my judge is God. Hananiah, God is gracious. Chen, you hear that in there, right? God is gracious. God gives favor, right? Uh, Mishael, who is God or God who is. And Azriah, God helps or God has helped. Now they're given new names. All of these names relate in one way, shape, or form to uh, Marduk, uh, or another god of the Babylonians in some way, shape, or form. Okay? Now, what's fascinating about these names is not just the obvious that here 
their names are being replaced, right? The names that identify them, give them this identity of knowing God, are replaced with an identity, uh, with a foreign identity, right? But there's something else. When you read about these names, when you read uh, uh, about the, the etymology of these names, what comes up is that they're, uh, they're uh, corrupted in some way, shape, or form. Each one of the new names is corrupted in some way, shape, or form, this, which is an interesting observation. So in other words, they're not pure uh, in terms of Belshazzar literally one just means, you know, uh, uh, Bel is Lord, okay? Uh, but there's some little corruption. And according to some, I'll just say, this is an interesting observation, according to some, that the author of Daniel corrupted the names in such a way so that we might see that even though their names are changed, they're not really these people. They're not really uh, um, Belshazzar, uh, not really uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. So that's kind of interesting. You know, an interesting observation that each one of those names, not the Hebrew names, but the other names are, are corrupted. So some have suggested that perhaps that was at the work of the author. But that's neither here nor there in the sense that they are given these other names. Now, there's something else really important about this. And that is, you'll notice in your Bible that I... Now, it, it says about these names... For example, in the New American Standard Version, it says... Um, and Daniel, he assigned the name. And you see where it says um, in verse 7, in my Bible, new is um, in italics, and then the name is in italics. Do you have that in your Bible? Okay. Or does it just say the name? Okay. Well, it's very interesting because what it says in Hebrew about the name I is this. Uh, let's see here. Yeah. Okay, verse 7. Yeah. V'yasem lahem. He set on them. It just says, he set on them. Okay, that's, this is important. Okay? It doesn't, say, it doesn't say he called them or he gave them the name, but it just says, and he set on them names. Okay? He set on them names. And then it says, V'yasem, Daniel, Belshazzar, you know, V'chananiah, Shadrach, and then so on. But this is V'yasem. Now, if you go back, like, for example, I won't take the time. If you go back to Genesis 41, uh, and it talks about Joseph's name, or it talks about uh, the names of his sons, there it literally, literally says they, uh, they had the name. They had the name. They were given a name. But here it says they, they placed a name on them, okay? Now, why am I making a big deal out of that? Because of something in the next verse, in verse 8, okay? In verse 8, when it says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself, it says in verse 8, V'asem Daniel al-libo. And Daniel set in his heart. He uses the very same word. 
So when you read it in Hebrew, it's, it, you can tell it's a play on words. Because in a very short period of time, beginning in verse 7 to the very first word of verse 8, you have this word, viasem, three times. Viasem, viasem. They placed names on them. But, but Daniel, viasem, Daniel placed in his heart that he would not defile himself. That's very powerful. That outwardly, the Chaldeans could do whatever they wanted to do. Outwardly, okay, we're going to indoctrinate them, we're going to teach them, we're, they're going to learn our ways, we're going to give them different names. But what the Chaldeans could never do was get inside the heart of these young men. The Chaldeans could not put out the passion for God. The Chaldeans could not put out the fire. May I suggest now, when they came to Babylon, they didn't come ready-made. You know, uh, they uh, uh, first, when they were young, these were people who already knew things about God and had been cultivated, may I say, the Shema, you know, teaching them over and over and over again, cultivating godliness, right? You shall teach them in the morning and in the night and when they are in and when they are out. But then through this crisis, these young men rose to the occasion. And Daniel, and the others, of course, Daniel made up his mind, which, is, which literally is Daniel set in his heart. They could set names, but Daniel set in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Now, you know what? We're going to stop here. We're going to stop here. Uh, that's the wonderful thing about going through a book. We're just going to stop right here. And we're going to start right here uh, next Shabbat. But the question for us uh, uh, is about our own selves and about our children. First, for our children, are we cultivating from within an identity of knowing God, an identity of spirituality, so that when they face the, you know, the culture, the issues of this world, the, the identities that people want to place on our uh, uh, children, do they have a heart for God? We can take on all kinds of outward identities, but inside of us, do, we, do our children know who they are? And that comes from inculcating the Word of God, from inculcating a passion for God, over and over and over again, so that when the winds of the culture come upon them, they don't break, that they have deep roots, and that nothing can put out the fire. And then the question is for all of us, do we have a heart for God? Have we set in our heart that we will not defile ourselves? Have we, like, thought about it? Have we thought about, okay, I know who I am in the Lord. I don't know all the things that are going to happen to me in my life, but have I set in my heart, have I placed upon myself that I will only go so far? I may learn all about the ways of the world, you know? I mean, my name's Howard. That's not a Hebrew name, you know? Uh, and many of us just have uh, names that come from all kinds of cultures around the world, right? But... In our heart, do we know who we are? In Messiah Yeshua, 
What does the Bible say? That he circumcises our heart. He gives us a heart. I will give you a new heart, the Bible says. And we need to guard that new heart. We need to set, so to speak, a a conviction that I have a heart for God and I'm going to cultivate that regardless of whether I'm a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or I'm, a, I'm retired or I'm 20 or I work in a store or I'm going to school or I'm trying to find myself or whatever. Do I know who I am on the inside? When you know who you are on the inside, nothing can shake you. There's lots of illustrations of people who have been tortured, right? Tortured. And we ask ourselves, boy, if somebody ever tortured me like that, I don't know what I would do but they're able to withstand the torture because they knew who they were on the inside. And so may that be true for each and every one of us as we learn from these young boys who came to Babylon. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you, God, that you have indeed planted within us your presence. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a new heart. Lord, may we be able to say, but I set my heart in such a way that I will not defile myself. Lord, I pray, God, for each of us that we would be able to live in our culture, in this world, and have a conviction, have a particular conviction, have, so to speak, perhaps we might even say a line in the sand, Lord, that we will not cross. Lord, and as we continue understanding this truth and understanding this book, may, Lord, we be able to cultivate that kind of conviction, Uh, Lord, For life is indeed the process of becoming. And as we unfold this book of Daniel, Lord, may may we move forward in our conviction of setting uh, your word, your truth in our heart, Lord. And we thank you for our Messiah who gave us that new heart, we pray in Yeshua's name.